Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Assistant Professor of History, William Sturkey. In our conversation, Professor Sturkey discusses his best moments in the classroom and his current research project on Vietnam War hero Roy Benavidez. What would you consider some of your highlights from the semester with regards to teaching? With regards to teaching? Yeah. Um, I love teaching the civil rights class. They are very engaged. I think they find the topic to be quite relevant mm-hmm. in this day and age. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier for them, perhaps, than it might have been for students four or five years ago to imagine civil rights both being won and gained. And so I think a lot of them have literally participated in some sort of civil rights demonstration or some sort of other demonstration or yeah. even a boycott or a sit-in or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's that class has been a real highlight. And there are, there are certain topics in that class that really resonate well with the students. So that has been one Could of the Could you give highlights. an example of one of those? So we spend a week on Emmett Till. You know, one of the things that we do with the readings is we read a piece about the way that white Mississippi segregationists sought to recriminalize, if you will, Emmett Till's father, who had been executed in 1945 in uh-huh. Europe. Uh-huh. And so one of the reasons that they did this, of course, was to suggest that, you know, if Emmett, had Emmett Till not been lynched when he was 14 in 1955, he might have very well fo- followed the same path toward criminality that his father was killed for wow. in the 1940s while he was serving in World War II uh-huh. in Italy. And so I think there, it's pretty easy for them to draw the connections from that to how we approach various shootings, especially police shootings in this day and age, when it's not just the facts of the actual shooting, it's also, okay, did this person owe, owe child support? You know, what kind of car did they drive? What did they say on their social media? Yeah. Almost as if it was sort of this predictive behavior right. that therefore justifies the murder of different people. Could you talk a little bit about your research in general? So I really started off writing about um, the history of Jim Crow mm-hmm. and both white and non-white people who lived during the era of, of Jim Crow. But I think more specifically, my work has moved toward uh, working class minorities in, the, in modern America, especially the modern American South more generally. So these are people who you know, were often not allowed to attend or teach at mm-hmm. or conduct research at institutions of higher learning. University of North Carolina included, Duke, Texas, but you know, all the big state and, and elite Southern schools that did not allow minorities to attend or teach there until the 1960s in most cases. Right. And so a lot of these folks, and in large part because of where they lived, the jobs that they did, um, their inability to work in the media and work at universities, many of their stories have been, for lack of a better term, lost to history. And so the work, much of the work that I do, uh, broadly speaking, is to recover those stories and talk about how the least privileged American citizens found opportunities or, you know, unique challenges mm-hmm. throughout life in the modern American South. So what would your process be to, you know, take these stories that are, quote unquote, lost to history to, to recover those? And could you talk a little bit about that process for your research? So one of the things that I do is I sort of look for margins in the archives when I can. Mm -hmm. I also use a variety of methodologies. There might be some scholars that 
use one or two methodologies throughout their entire career, and I just can't do that. Some of the yeah. things you have to do is cobble these things together. Sometimes you have to do research in reverse, and some of the things that I'm able to do, I'm only able to do because of new technologies that have existed in the past decade or so. Yeah. So for example, um, my first book was about the uh, Mississippi Freedom Schools and the students who attended them. And so it was a document, it was an edited document collection about these young people who had gone to these schools at the very back end of Jim Crow as the civil rights movement is happening. And these young people, they, they talk, they, you know, they share their intellectual journeys through sort of what their lives had been like and then ultimately how their lives were changing during the civil rights movement. And so to, to find those voices, because, you know, they didn't publish in mainstream newspapers at the time, and many of them didn't yeah. go to prominent schools that saved their materials, what, what, we, what I did, my co-editor and I, was we found Freedom School newspapers that they produced and different writings that they produced that were saved by white civil rights activists who had then returned home and donated their papers to different places across oh, the wow. country. Okay. So those were found in Madison, Wisconsin, in Kent, Ohio, in Queens, New York. Yeah. But what we, we went to all of these places to help rescue the voices of young black Mississippians. So that's how we were able to flush out their voices um, from sort of the margins of the civil rights movement. So you said you had to go place to place around the country. I guess that was a challenge in and of itself to figure out where these papers were or where they're located. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the easiest one was UW-Madison. Um, in the late 60s, UW-Madison sent a couple of people down to Mississippi to collect as many papers related to the civil rights movement there as possible. Oh, okay. And were these academics or scholars that were... It was it was or? it was an archivist, okay. um, supported by the um, State Historical Society of Wisconsin or the Wisconsin Historical Society, whichever is the proper name, mm -hmm. and um, they just decided that they wanted to help build a collection based on social justice issues, and so that was clearly one that, and you know, this is sort of in the middle of the Vietnam War protests, which yeah. like many big public state institutions, consumed Madison for a long time. So they sent people down with car, and they gathered all these papers, and they have this pretty extensive collection related to uh, civil rights in the entire American South, but specifically Mississippi. So putting this collection together, were there any stories or, or information that you found really surprising that you wouldn't expect to find? You know, there's such a wide array. One thing that, and of course, you know, I'm a historian, so I paid close attention to this, but the way that they talked about history black youths from the ages of five to 19 years old. They were constantly talking about people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and folks like that, who they had not learned about in their normal, who they often had not learned about in their normal history classes. Yeah. Okay. So that was really interesting to me, the way that, you know, quite specifically, there were ninth graders, for example, who said, okay, this is what Frederick Douglass said about freedom. Therefore, you know, based on this interpretation, this is what freedom means to me. And so, you know, yeah. a kid who's living, a, what, 100, or no, I guess just 70 years after Frederick Douglass died, but certainly, a, you know, much longer than um, about 110 years after he, you know, published his famous narrative. Right. So these children being exposed to it, it just meant so much to them. So that yeah. was surprising how well they were able to apply the lessons from the past to their vision of the present and the future. Can you talk a little bit about your project that you're working on now? Yes, so the project I'm working on now, I'm at the early stages of writing still, but I've been researching it for a couple
couple of years, okay. is a biography of the Vietnam War hero of Roy Benavides. Mm-hmm. And Roy Benavides is a Mexican-American, third-generation U.S.-born from a little tiny town in Texas, I guess about two hours outside of Austin, southeast okay. of Austin. Mm-hmm. Severely disadvantaged childhood. So he was born in 1935, middle of the Great Depression, Mexican-American, poor cotton farming family. He's, he was orphaned by the age of six. He moved in with an uncle. You know, they were cotton pickers and migrant workers during Great Depression. And again, they were not white. So mm-hmm. their lives were extraordinarily challenging. Yeah. And so I'm writing a bi- biography of him in large part because he's famous for an act that he performed during the Vietnam War. But I'm also thinking about um, what life was like for Mexican-American migrant laborers during that time and how they did or did not have access to citizenship much in the way, as citizenship and federal benefits, quite frankly, right. in the same way that other people did during the New Deal era. So what, what, what was that actor, in the, that famous actor in the Vietnam War that, that you referenced? So on May 2nd, 1968, Roy Benavides performed an act that he was later awarded the Medal of Honor for. And so he was operating with a unit that was working near the border, the Cambodian border in South Vietnam, a couple hours north of Saigon. And what they were doing is they were part of a, uh, this special group called um, Studies and Observation Group, also nicknamed Daniel Boone. Okay. And so what they would do is they would hop across the fence, as they called it, go over the border because goods from Russia and China were being smuggled through Cambodia North, actually. Most people are familiar with the Ho Chi Minh Trail. There's yeah. also a Sihanouk Trail that ran south to north, came up from the port of Cambodia, and goods were infiltrated into South Vietnam to the hands of the Viet Cong that way. Of course, the United States was not very happy about this, but couldn't really do a whole, much, a whole lot about it, especially with Cambodia's prince at the time denying that it was ever happening. Mm-hmm. And so the United States wanted to prove that these goods were being handed off to the Viet Cong through Cambodia and then ultimately across the border. Okay. And so they had these studies and observation groups, and Sergeant Benavides was part of this, that were generally 12-man teams, um, usually six Americans, experienced people like Roy Benavides. He had joined the military in the 50s, so he's, he'd been in the military oh, by, wow. for 13 years yeah, by this yeah. point in time. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he, was about th- he was 33 years old. Also, Montegards. So those are the folks from the Laotian and Vietnamese highlands, native people who weren't really chosen. They weren't really on one side or the other. They really didn't. They weren't too concerned about the domino theory and communism or anything like that. They were hired mercenaries by the American government, basically. And so the teams would be 12 people, six of these natives, if you will, and six people from the American forces, usually Green Berets, um, who, who were trained in multiple multiple types of skills, but especially um, usually paratroopers. They were dropped off behind the border in Cambodia, um, left for a couple of days, and were there to document what was coming up and down the trail. And so Roy was actually not out that on this particular day. He was back at the base when it turned out that one of the groups that included several of his friends, including his best friend at the time who had saved his life on one occasion, had been dropped off right by a large battalion of North Vietnamese regulars. Mm. Okay, so pretty serious deal. There's 12 of them. There's all, there are all these North Vietnamese regulars, and they, they encounter a couple of them at first. 
they turn around, they ask for extraction, that's denied to them, and then they encounter some of the regulars. And some shooting erupts, and so the, the United States forces go in and try and pull them out. It doesn't go very well. The first helicopter is shot down. Another helicopter um, tries to go in, has to be diverted, um, and lands somewhere else nearby. And another helicopter goes in, and Roy is at base where he hears this happening on the radio. He hears the voice of his friend, and he jumps on one of the extraction helicopters. And so what happens is Roy flies in. He, he lands. He's able to establish contact with the men. He, um, he pulls all the classified documents from the team leader, brings the men over to sort of this, to the middle of this field that's this elephant grass that's a few feet high, establishes a defensive perimeter, is, um, you know, firing, trying to defend them, helping them. Those who can, there are still, there are many men who are um, severely injured or, or dead by this point, and he helps them sort of fend off the North Vietnamese regulars while another helicopter can come to help load them up. Yeah. And so ultimately he pulls seven of the men onto that helicopter. Just as they're about to take off, the helicopter pilot is shot and killed. So he pulls the men back off of the helicopter, continues to help establish this defensive perimeter, calls in airstrikes, um, all sorts of either helicopters or Air Force jets. And ultimately another helicopter comes in Sergeant Benavidez loads everybody up and saves at least eight American lives in the process during this remarkable act of valor. Wow. He himself was shot several times, took some shrapnel, was, was stabbed. One of the North Vietnamese regulars launched or you know, decided to charge the line in probably hopes of um, grabbing some sort of proof that the Americans were there, because on the flip side, they want to prove that the Americans are there too. So right. the people yeah. on, the, uh, on these missions can't carry any ID or anything like that. Mm. Um, but this guy stabs Roy in the arm. Roy fights him in hand-to-hand combat and eventually kills the guy. And so he took 37 puncture wounds in total. Um, he was at the point where he was unconscious and literally in a body bag before they realized that he was still alive. Wow. And so that's that's what he was awarded the Medal of Honor for. But the Medal of Honor that he was awarded did not come until 1981, in large part because he was immediately awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And to have that upgraded, you need some sort of additional evidence. And the United States government slash military um, still refuses to acknowledge the role that the Green Berets were playing in Cambodia. And so that additional evidence couldn't be found through looking at any sort of like after action reports or anything like that. Um, They actually found one of the pilots later on um, living in Fiji remotely, and he ultimately provided the additional evidence. But so this fight to be awarded the Medal of Honor based on this act lasted from the mid-70s when Roy was forced to retire because of his disabilities that he incurred on the field that day until 1981 when he was actually awarded the medal. Wow, that's amazing. This is a question that we ask all our guests. What's a book that changed your life? A book that changed my life? I mean, my, f- my favorite nonfiction book is Common Ground by J. Anthony Lucas. And the reason that I say that is because it's about three, well, it's about, it's about a city, it's about busing, it's about education, and, and you know, it's about the, the Boston busing crisis in the okay. 60s and 70s. Yeah. And one of the things that I found most fascinating about it was the way that he 
delivered this really intimate perspective of three very different types of actors involved with the Boston busing crisis. The white parents who, you know, are often vilified mm -hmm. um, because they were protesting inner city busing to right. achieve racial equity or at least more racial balance in Boston schools. One of the black families whose kids were bused to one of the poor white <laughs> Irish schools. Okay. And then one of sort of the liberal, the white liberal Harvard educated architects of this system. Oh, and yeah. I just, I love the book so much because it really helps you appreciate the perspectives of all of the actors involved, even though some of them are quite specifically at odds with each other. Yeah. When did you uh, first read that? Sometime in graduate school, maybe okay. 2009, yeah. 2010, something like that. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.